morning, friends. Good morning, Theater 14. Thank you so much for coming and being with us today. If you're a guest, I just want to welcome you, and uh, hopefully you've been welcomed by a bunch of people so far today, and I want to point your attention to our worship program, maybe you received on the way in. If not, you can grab one on your way out. And uh, today we're talking about prayer, as Pastor Jed mentioned. We're doing our series, Red Letters, that you just saw the video for, and if you want to submit a prayer request, if we can pray for you in some way, there's a little card in your um, worship program that you can fill out. And if you're a guest, we ask you to fill that card out, even if you don't have a prayer request. If you just tell us how you heard about us as a church, we actually uh, make a donation to a ministry, part of our just global outreach. Um, obviously, we've got the ministry going on in Panama. You saw Matt and Misty today and their family. Um, there's another ministry called Women at Risk International that we partner with. And every time somebody fills out a guest card, uh, we make a donation to them. And so you can have an opportunity to impact somebody's life today if you'd fill that card out. And then also, we'd love to just hear how you heard about us as a church. And so if you want to take a moment even right now and do that, um, that would be great. Also, um, just as a way of stuff that's going on at our church. On August 23rd, we're going to be doing baptisms again. Um, we're doing this series talking about obeying Jesus' commands. He tells us to be baptized. Um, it's one of the first steps of obedience. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized and you'd like to be baptized, August 23rd is when we're going to do that. And so you can look at your calendars and figure out whether that works or not. Um, but if you're interested, you've got questions or you want to sign up, the blue tent is out in the lobby today. And so if you go out to the blue tent, maybe you've got uh, a child or a junior hire that's meeting right now in one of the other rooms and they want to get baptized, take them out to the blue tent before you leave today. And uh, we'll be able to make that happen. So we're doing this series called Red Letters. We're talking about the, oftentimes in English translations, you'll see the, the words of Jesus are actually written in red in your New Testament. So we've been talking about those things, but specifically the commands of Jesus that we're told to obey. And we don't want to just be hearers of the word, we want to be doers of the word. And so we're talking about stuff that we should go and do as a result of that. And so as we look at the message today, even just be asking yourself, how should I live differently? How should this change my life? What should I be doing that maybe I'm not already doing or should be encouraged to do better or uh, refine? Or how is the Spirit of God going to work in my life today that would actually make a difference, not just that we have a religious gathering? And so I'm going to pray to God that he'd just transform us. And we'll pray, then we'll open up the Scripture. It'll be in Matthew 7 today. So let me pray for us. Father, um, we come before you, and we know that uh, if we ask for wisdom, you promise to give it. In James chapter 1, I ask you to give us wisdom. Each person here, I pray for wisdom. Um, and the decisions that have to be made in their lives, um, and the different scenarios that are going on, that they would be guided by your truth. I pray you'd renew our minds. You promised to renew our minds, to transform us, that we wouldn't be conformed to this world and the ways of this world, but you'd transform us in the way that you designed the world to be. And Father, I pray that you'd break our hearts for the things that are not as they should be. And God, I pray you'd meet with us as we open up your word. And I pray that your presence would be here in a unique way because we're gathered together, and we're gathered together in agreement about your mission to change this place. And I pray you'd change us. Help us to be doers of your word. And I pray this wouldn't just be a time of going through religious motions. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. If you want, you can go ahead and jump there right now. We're talking about prayer today, but I just want to share with you a little bit of a story that happened in my life about, I don't know, let's say about three or four weeks ago. My wife and I were in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was actually a couple weeks after a, a terrible crime had taken place there. I don't know if you saw that on the news. You probably did. If you pay attention to the news, there was a shooting there. It was a hate crime. It was actually racially driven. It was terrible. And uh, for those of you who don't know, what ended up happening was there was a young man, uh, 21 years old, filled with hate. And he went into a church because it was a historic black church. Uh, went there for a Bible study and a prayer meeting. Actually sat through it. Some of you might think he just walked in and started shooting people. He did not. He actually went to the Bible study. I asked to sit next to the pastor. And uh, they were going through um, some scriptures together. He got to a point where he disagreed. He started arguing. He pulled a gun out of his duffel bag and started shooting people and saying a bunch of racial slurs. As he was doing that, um, reportedly, he said some things like, I'll give you something to pray about, as he was shooting and killing nine people and saying the racial slurs uh, that he said. And one woman reported that he turned to her and said, have I shot you yet? And she said, no. And he said, well, good, because someone has to survive. And then he took the gun and put it to his own head, pulled the trigger, and realized he had run out of ammunition. 
then fled and was later apprehended. And that day, nine people died. We were able to go to that church a couple weeks after that happened. Outside of the church um, was a bunch of blockades and the memorial set up. And we've seen these things happen, unfortunately, in our country multiple times with different things. And, and it was a lot of the stuff you see on the news. There was a bunch of flowers there. There were people there to pay their respects, some seemingly uh, religious. I remember some Jewish guys. One guy looked like a Jewish rabbi was out there praying out in front of the church. Um, there were some people that uh, didn't seem to be there for a prayer or anything, but were just there paying their respects. Uh, many people emotional. It was interesting to watch different people and how they grieved differently. Uh, one of the things I didn't see on the news but uh, was striking to me when I was there was there was a tree out in front of the the church that people were writing on with Sharpies and they were carving um, different things to the, the family survivor. I brought a picture if you want to see it on there. Um, you can see it says, God bless, and then it's Charleston Strong on there. It was one of the statements they had after um, the Boston Strong. I think we were the first ones that, that had that. A couple years ago, the Boston Marathon was bombed, a terrorist bombing that took place. And uh, I saw that and uh, started to grip me some. I didn't know anybody that died that day, personally, but they were my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I started to think about the families and the survivors. And then I went over to a fire hydrant that had a similar writing on it. We have a picture of that as well. And on top of the fire hydrant, somebody had put a bracelet, a Sandy Hook Strong bracelet there of a, a mass murder that had taken place a few years ago, I believe it was. I think it was 2012. And um, I started thinking about all these kids that were killed that day. My understanding was uh, the killer was uh, wanting to do something bad to his mom. And... Uh, all those families are left to pick up the pieces. And then here you got this guy that came in and shot these people just because of the color of their skin, which was horrific. And now these survivors are left to pick up the pieces. And I started to get emotional in that. And then fast forward to this week. This week I've got an app on my phone that gives me news updates as things are popping up, some of the bigger headlines that are popping up. And I had a news update that came on my phone that this 21-year-old hate-filled young man had been formally charged for the crimes. And I was reading through the article, and it said that he's going to get life in prison or the death sentence. And they'd have to decide some of those things, um, assuming that he was found guilty of all of this. And I immediately felt like that is right, and he should, and he needs to pay, and that is justice. And then at the same time, I started to think to myself, but how much hate do you have to have in your heart to do something like this? This guy's got to be going to hell. I don't want anyone going to hell. So then I wanted to experience mercy, and, and I wanted to know salvation through Christ and, and forgiveness. And, but at the same time, I want justice, and there's this tension. Have you ever experienced tension like that? It's like two things. It's like your emotions seem to conflict with each other, and there's tension. Have you ever been in a fight with someone? You know what it's like to experience tension. Or been in an awkward moment, even. There's tension. Or you see things that are happening in the world that aren't the way they should be, and there's tension with that. Or even in the Bible, just think about it. as Christians, we live with tension. We proclaim that God is sovereign, but that we also have responsibility in the decisions we make. That's tension. And practically, we talk about how we're victorious over sin because we've got Jesus Christ who's washed us clean. But how many people didn't sin last week? Don't raise your hand. You'll be a liar. There's tension. We live in a world of tension. What's the tension in your life? What are the tensions you face? What's the sin you struggle with? What are the relationships that are not the way that they should be? What are the other things that happen that you see that you realize are not right? How do you deal with that? And that's what we're talking about today. That's what the passage tells us how to do. And Matthew chapter 7 is how to deal with the tension in our lives. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. In Matthew chapter 7, we're going to focus in on verses 7 through 11, but I want you to realize that we're jumping into a sermon. Really, we're jumping into like a, a couple minutes of a sermon that Jesus has been preaching in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, the end of it. And what we're looking at here is the concluding part. And what Jesus has done, since the Bible is a, a living book, 
for a real world. It doesn't shy away from tensions. And so Jesus talked about a bunch of tensions, and he's actually talked about how we're supposed to live, and he raised the bar way above what anyone expected at that point. And so he starts off talking about living as people of the light, and then he goes through and talks about what that looks like in marriages, in money, in our anxiety, and relationships with other people, with all the things that happen in life. And he says things like, um, you know, you've heard it said to love your neighbor. I'm telling you to love your enemy. Uh, you know that it's wrong to commit murder. I'm telling you, if you hate someone, that that's as if you committed murder in your heart. And you know it's wrong to commit adultery, but I'm telling you that even if you lust after someone, you fantasize after someone, that that is sinful. And so what he's done is he's set this stuff up where you feel like this is impossible. But he doesn't just make it impossible. Our passage tells us how to accomplish the impossible. He's telling us how to live in this tension with all the things that are taking place. And he says this, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And so we're going to look at three commands today, and there they are. Ask, seek, knock. And then verses 9 through 11, he talks about the character of God. He says, which of you... If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. And the answer, hopefully, is no one. I hope none of you would actually do that. I don't know if you've ever seen Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel does a thing on YouTube where he uh, has parents give their kids terrible Christmas presents. Um, they'll give, like, a potato and then tell their kid, it's a Mr. Potato Head, and they get mad. Um, I saw one little girl, she had a half-eaten sandwich, and she's like, I don't like this. I thought you liked my cooking, the mom says. Yeah, but not this. Like, I like when you make Hot Pockets. You know, she starts saying stuff to the thing, and... Intentionally giving your kids bad gifts. Most of us probably wouldn't do that. There are some parents that would do that. There are parents that are actually abusive. There are parents that are bad parents. And some of you maybe had those parents. The point is not about that. The point is that God is not like that. And anything good that you actually see in your parents, God's actually even better than that. So most parents wouldn't even do that. If you, though, even though you're evil, even those, those of you who wouldn't do this mean stuff, you're still sinful. You still sin. But you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven, who is good, give good gifts to those who ask him? And so what the passage is all about is about praying. Asking, seeking, and knocking are all metaphors for prayer. They're all pictures of prayer. They're actually all commands in the passage. They're imperatives, and they're present imperatives. And that means they're something that you, it's not just something you do every once in a while or you do once. It's a continual thing. So you keep asking, 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 seeking, 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 knocking, 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 and it's a continue to pray. But this is the kind of passage where if you just read it at the surface level and you forget the context, it's easy to take it out of context and just make it say what you want. Ask, and you will receive. Those who ask, it's given to them. Verse 7 and verse 8. On a surface level, you've probably heard maybe prosperity preachers, maybe on TV, or maybe you've gone to a church like that. I hope not, but maybe you've gone to a church like that where they say things like, if you, if you just ask for it, you'll get it. So get a Mercedes. Ask for a Mercedes. And if you didn't get the Mercedes, it's your fault because you don't believe enough. In fact, I've seen this manifest itself when people have cancer. You only have cancer because you don't believe enough. You don't have enough faith. That's not true. And that's not what this passage is teaching. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say when you rip verses out of context. I remember when I was a youth pastor, um, sitting in a Sunday school class, an older guy was teaching our, our youth, and I remember he opened the Bible up to the Gospels, and he read a verse that said, and, and Judas went and hung himself, and then he flipped to another part of the Bible, and he says, and you should go and do likewise. And his point was not that you should go hang yourself. His point was, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you rip it out of context. And so, if you wanted to take a two-minute segment of my message just now, you could make it sound like I'm telling everyone to go hang themselves. That's not what I'm teaching. And Jesus is not teaching here 
that you can get a Mercedes or a 60-inch TV or an all-expense-paid vacation to somewhere if you just ask hard enough. What's he doing? What's the context? Well, the context is the sermon. And the sermon is talking about tension. Because he says things like, we'll jump back. Well, the first part of the chapter 5, he's only speaking to believers, first of all. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, nothing I say today applies to you. What you need to do is place your faith in Jesus and begin a relationship with him. But he calls to himself his disciples. And then he begins to teach his disciples in the first several verses what it is to be happy. Who are the happy people? And he says, the happy people are the humble people. They're going to see God. Implication, the proud will not. The happy people are those who are persecuted. The happy people are those who are pure in heart. The happy people are those who are peacemakers with others. And he goes through this, and then he says this interesting statement that we've talked about a lot at our church, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. It's really a vision message. He says, and you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're going to be a city on a hill. If you'd live out the stuff that I just talked about at the beginning of chapter 5, you would be the light of the world. And then he says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light so shine before men they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And he goes to talk about how this works itself out with relationships with other people in a marriage situation. And then he talks about loving not just your neighbors, but love your enemies. And then he says this in chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. Huh? Did you read chapter 5, verse 16? He says, if you do that, you're basically one of the hypocrites. You have no reward in heaven. But you just said to do our good deeds before men. That's tension. You jump to the part, the passage, the chapter that we're in. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, don't judge people. Have you read verse 6? It talks about how to judge people. That's a tension. How do you live with this tension? How do you live in this broken, twisted, dark world the way that Jesus tells us to do it? That alone is a tension. Much less you start looking at, well, am I supposed to do my deeds before men or am I not supposed to do my deeds? What about judging them? But then I'm supposed to judge them. Let me tell you how you do it. You do it with persistent prayer. He's not just giving us impossible stuff to do. In the context here, what he's talking about is not that if you just wish hard enough, God will be your genie. He's saying you persistently pray to me. It's a present imperative, ask, 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 command. Seek, seek, seek. Continue to knock. Keep knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. It's a persistent prayer. We know prayer is important throughout the Bible. We see it continually. Jesus did it. We see him do it as an example. We see him go off on a busy day just to, to get alone with the Father. We see before he makes decisions about the apostles, who are the other 12 guys going to be? And he goes and he prays to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. We see his disciples in this passage. In uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we see them in chapter 6 go to Jesus. And they get to ask Jesus anything they want. Think about that. If you get to ask Jesus to teach you anything, you could have him teach you. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him raise dead people. They've seen him cast out demons. What are you going to ask him? They said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray? I think that walking on water thing sounds kind of cool. Like, why don't we tell us how to do that? They said, no, teach us to pray. And Jesus teaches them how to pray. And he assumes prayer in that passage. He says, when you pray, he assumes if you're a follower of his that you're praying. He commands it in other places in scripture. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. He says this, watch and pray. Why? So that you will not fall into temptation. You live in this dark world. Let me tell you the answer. Pray. A great verse to memorize. It's only two words. It's not Jesus wept, but it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray continually. To command. You'd always be praying. Same kind of command that's given here when he says ask. Present imperative. Present meaning you keep on doing it. Ask, ask, ask. Seek, seek, seek. Knock, knock, knock. So prayer is important. We see Jesus did it as an example. He commanded it. He expected it. And he demonstrated it. So what is it? What's prayer? What does it mean to pray? 
very simply, we could say that it's talking to God, but it's more than just talking to God. In fact, there's probably thousands of books written about it. If you go to the Christian bookstore, and you'll find thousands of different definitions. We're talking about a specific kind of prayer in this passage, the kind where you're petitioning God, asking him for something. And so let me tell you what prayer is. Prayer is rebellion. In the context of this passage, it's clear that Jesus is talking about a rebellion, a rebellion against this world, a rebellion against this world's systems, a rebellion against all the things that are not the way that they should be. You live in a world where you shouldn't even have enemies. That's not the way God designed it. He's saying you love your enemies then. And when you can't love your you pray to me, you come to me for this. You live in a world where there shouldn't even be arguments, but in the context of the sermon, he talks about divorce. You pray, you persistently pray. You're, you're supposed to be sexually pure in this environment. He says the blessed are the pure in heart. You pray, persistently pray. Because you're rebelling against the way that things are in this world. I read one guy, David Wells, who said it like this this week. He defined it as rebellion. And I love the way that he explained it. So I'm just going to read you exactly what he said. We'll put it on the screen. Prayer, talking about petitionary prayer. He says, it is, in essence, rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness. The absolute undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. And you say, well, no, no, things here, that is normal. No. Listen to what he's saying. It is in this, its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. And God's plan for the way that things should be before sin came into this place is there shouldn't be any disease. And there shouldn't be any divorce, and there shouldn't be any depression, and there shouldn't be any of the discouragement, and there shouldn't be the anxiety, and there shouldn't be the fighting, and there shouldn't be enemies, and there shouldn't be frustration in work. In fact, you're supposed to work and then enjoy the fruits of your labor, but instead we get the sweat of our brow. It's all part of the curse. And so when you see things that are contrary to God's original plan, that's not how it should be. So don't just fall into the model of flowing with the stream of the way things are happening. Instead, you rebel against it through petitionary prayer persistently, continually praying and seeking and asking because you know things aren't right. I have Facebook. I see what some of you say. Some of you are going to go unfriend me because I just said that. But Think about the things that are on Facebook. And we, we, we know things aren't right. So the most recent thing that's in the news is the Planned Parenthood um, selling organs of babies and talking about the destructive, the terrible way that they're killing kids. And we knew been, we've known that they've been murdering children for a long time. And now we're upset they're selling their organs. And so we talk about it on Facebook. Or the Confederate flag. We talk about Charleston. And so is it, a, is it a historic thing or is it a hateful thing? And so we debate that, passionately debate that on Facebook. Or Caitlin Bruce Jenner, whichever name you're supposed to pick. And people are going to talk about all that and whether that's courage or not courage. And we'll debate that. And we're crying out about those things on Facebook. Are we crying out to God? That's the question. Because he's saying, you see that things are not as they should be. Cry out to me. You come to me. Ask me. Instead, what many of us do with prayer is we pray. I don't doubt that a lot of you pray. But is it really the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about? Or is it more of a hollow, dead semblance of what God says to do and we know the platitudes, the Christian platitudes to say, but is there any life in it and is there any meaning really in what we're doing are we going through some motions because it's like something we're supposed to do it's like I read, I read a weird article this week, I read lots of different stuff and this one article I saw um, this lady um, couldn't deal with death and there's a, a bunch of psychological levels that I'm not even trying to go to in this story um, but her husband died, she had him dug up out of the ground and he stayed in her house with the body uh, for about 10 years after he died she kept his body out in the garage on a Davenport on the, on the couch out in the garage and she'd go out and visit him so that she could communicate with him and then her sister died and uh, she had the sister dug up and brought into the house as well and she'd do her makeup and put perfume on her and so they continued to have a relationship was what she said Here's the reality, without getting into all the things that are taking place there. 
They're not there. You have what you think looks like a relationship because you think they look like that person, but they're not there. You have a hollow, dead expression of a relationship. And that's what many of us have in our prayer lives. We pray and we say things. Maybe we learned it from hearing other people. Pastors pray, our parents pray, somebody else pray. And you hear, go to prayer meetings even. God, be with the headspace in Panama. God, heal this disease, please. Guide my life by your will, not mine, but yours be done. And we say all the phrases. There's no life in it. There's no simile. You want, when prayer gets real is when prayer is personal. When it's personal to you. That's when you get passion in what you're asking for. So whatever he's talking about here, we have to really want it. If we're going to keep asking for it, if we're going to keep seeking it, we're going to keep knocking, you have to really want this thing. I know for me personally, prayer becomes personal when I really want something, when when it impacts my life. So I'm crying out for healing. You know what I don't care about at that point? I don't care what any of y'all think. I don't care what anybody thinks of the words that I'm using, of how it's happening, of any emotions that are happening. If you don't believe the things that I'm praying, I don't care. I'm talking to God. It becomes personal. It becomes real. And so we pray for and We'll cry out for our healing. We will cry out for our comfort. We will cry out for our ease. We'll cry out for our agenda to be done in other people's lives. But we cry out for the character of Christ to be demonstrated in ours. Because that's the context. I'm talking about context, context, context. That's the context here. Well, you go back to chapter 5 and verse 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you want that? Like you'd want healing, like you'd want your agenda done, like you'd want your will to take place. That's what he's saying here when he says, ask and it will be given. You ask for the character of Christ in your life and he'll give you the character of Christ in your life. You ask that Christ be seen through you and he will answer that prayer. Are you ready for it? Ask, he says, the first command. What does it mean to ask? We'll go see each one of these commands. Ask, seek, knock. Ask means simply um, to request something. I don't think I need to spend very much time talking about what it means to ask because we've known how to ask our entire lives. You know how to ask when you were two years old and you didn't have your blanket or your pacifier. You asked for it. Before you could even speak when you were a brand new baby, you asked for food. We figure out a way to request what we want when we realize there's a need that we can't meet and we go to the person that we trust to meet that need. That's what it is to ask. So we as people are then asking God because he's almighty, holy creator of the universe and can do things we can't do. We know there's things in our lives we can't control, so we ask him for them. The question is why. It's not really what does it mean to ask. Why are we asking God, especially when you look at the context? If you jump back a little bit, chapter 6 and verse 32, you'll see that it says that God knows your needs. And when he teaches about prayer in chapter 6 and verse 8, it says God knows your needs before you ask him. And so I ask myself the question, if God already knows my needs before I ask him, why am I asking him? Wouldn't it be great if it just the kids didn't have to ask you? They're thinking about my kids coming around with like little birds. Just give me stuff, give me this, give me that. I don't want him to ask, much less keep asking. Why does he say ask, ask, ask? Why are we continually supposed to ask? Why isn't it just one time? Like get an answer and then you're done with the thing. Well, the very simple answer to why God tells us to ask is in James chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. He won't give it to you if you don't ask for it. He knows your needs. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet. You'll do all kinds of things to get it, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You will struggle and strive your entire lives, but you won't ask him. You do not have because you do not ask God. So he says to ask because you're acknowledging your need, his ability to meet the need. So then you read a verse like this. It's a blank check. He's saying ask, and I'm going to give it to you. You don't have because you don't ask. If you'd ask, then I'd give it to you. 
Isn't that like a blank check? We actually had somebody um, put a blank check in the box here at Southbridge recently. Um, just at Southbridge, uh, for those of you who are newer, uh, since the beginning, the very beginning of our church, we've just put a box out. We don't do like high pressure, get you to give the offering or whatever. As the Lord leads you, you come put stuff in the black boxes we put out here. I remember when we first started meeting, we weren't even in this room. Um, we were renting a place to meet, and there's like 40 of us, and uh, we didn't know if we'd have enough money to pay the rent. We just prayed that we'd have enough money to pay the rent. I remember we were short uh, by a couple hundred dollars, and then at the end of the day, somebody gave some money um, actually in our mailbox, and we ended up being $4 over what we needed for that first meeting. So we've just kind of trusted the Lord um, to provide the resources that we need to pay the rent um, here at the theater, and it's about the equivalent of a $3 million loan, which is crazy how much we pay to be here, and uh, just do the ministry that we do. And uh, a couple weeks ago, somebody put a blank check in the box. So like, hallelujah, It's covered. Some of you are thinking, honey, did you, uh, you made sure, like, right? We called the person, in case you're wondering. But Now, what, if, they, if somebody does just drop a blank check in the box, what do we need to know? We need to know something about the name on the check, right? What are, how many zeros can we put on this thing? And did you intend to? And we called them, and that was an accident. Uh, they did not mean to put a blank check in the box. We made that right and just added one zero. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we didn't. Um, but if they had, if they had intended to just say, hey, whatever you want to do, we still have to need to know something about the name on the check. And so that's why Jesus tells us verses 9 through 11 here. You ask and God will answer. But what do we need to know about God? And the answer is he only gives good gifts. Look at it. Which of you, if he asks for bread, will give for a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, you human parents, you human fathers, you're evil, you're sinful, you lose your temper, you, you lust, you hate, you do these different things, and your Heavenly Father doesn't do any of that stuff. But you know how to give good gifts, even though you are evil. Then how much more, that's the key phrase, how much more will your Father in Heaven, who's a perfect Father, give good gifts to those who ask Him? He only gives good gifts. Because God, by his very nature, is good. That is his characteristic. Jesus, in Luke chapter 18, rich young ruler comes to him. And Jesus says back to him, no one's good except for God. God is good. He's the only one that is good. We sang about God being good. We read uh, Romans chapter 8, for God works all things together for good. So he brings every end, even the evil stuff, together for good. In Exodus, Moses is crying out to God, God, show us your glory. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. And he passes before Moses in Exodus chapter 34, and he declares his characteristics. He starts talking about his faithfulness, his justice, his mercy. He hears prayers. That's his goodness. Everything about him demonstrates his goodness. And so he is good. In fact, you see another story in Genesis chapter, um, what was it? It's the end of Genesis, Genesis 45, 50, in that range. Joseph goes through terrible circumstances in his life. He's standing before the people who caused the greatest harm in his life. And he's able to say to them, you intended this for harm. Terrible abuse in his name, in his life. But God intended it for good. So he even takes your evil and uses it. That's how good God is and uses it for good. The ultimate act of God's goodness is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, for us. So that you and I, while we were yet sinners, his enemies, he would die for us so that we could have life and he'd offer us the gift of eternal life. That is goodness. And I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 about that. We talk about gifts and the gifts that God will give. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And all things that he's going to give us are good. He only gives good gifts. Don't miss that. So you're praying for something, and God does something different, then you know what you can trust? You can trust that that's good. Here's the problem for us. Oftentimes we ask for things, and we don't even realize we're asking for a snake. 
we're asking for a stone. We think that we're asking for bread, and, and what they said there is that, that there's, uh, um, there were stones in that area that looked like bread. Can you imagine a child getting, getting baited into that, biting, breaking their teeth? It's a physical provision. Snakes? Snakes were unclean for Jews to eat. And so the idea is there is not a living snake that would be given instead of a fish, but that it would look like meat on a plate. And what father would not provide spiritually for his son because he's going to set him up to fail spiritually? God's never going to do that to you. That's what he's saying. He's going to provide for you physically. He's going to provide for you spiritually. Even an earthly father would do his best to do those things. But the heavenly father is perfect and all he's going to give you is what is good. And you might think to yourself, think about what you're praying for. I'm praying that cancer will be healed. I'm praying that I'd have a husband. I'm praying that this person would be saved. I'm praying for what? What are you praying for? You're praying for a job. You can pray for lots of things that aren't bad things to pray for. Of course it would be good, right? And some of you don't ask for that. That's interesting. I remember one time preaching at a seminary um, here in town. And afterwards, so these weren't like brand new Christians. These were people that were preparing to go to ministry. And I was preaching on a different passage on prayer and had a woman come up to me afterwards and said she had cancer. She said, I never thought about asking God to take it away. You know the only person that can take it away. You didn't even ask. But you might ask him, what if he doesn't? Then you know what you can trust? That's a good answer. But I want a spouse. Maybe, maybe it's not time. Because not only does he give good gifts, but he gives them in the perfect timing. And what God's oftentimes doing, and he tells us to keep asking, not because he wants to get annoyed with our repetition. He tells us not to have just vain repetition, but he wants us to keep crying out to him with real living prayer that's rebellion against this place. Why? Because in the process, he's changing you. And he's changing me. It's not that we think that we're changing him, like we're going to convince him to do what we want him to do. No, he's changing us in the process. If you have never read Genesis chapter 32, there's a story of a guy named Jacob there. And he wrestles with God. We had a guy at our church one time that God used that passage of scripture to bring him to Christ. He was a wrestler. This guy was wrestling with God. And Jacob is wrestling with God. He grabs a hold of God and he says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. Do you know what happens just before that? Is that God touches his hip and gives him a limp for the rest of his life. You know who's changed in that situation? It's Jacob, not God. But it's through the process of wrestling with God that the change takes place. That's so what God may want to do in your life. He may want to change you. You're crying out for a spouse, and God's saying, not right now. You're not ready, because that would, it is a good gift, but if I gave it to you right now, you'd idolize that person. No, not yet. I'm changing you. You're crying out for healing. Of course, God, he didn't, want, he didn't want cancer at the beginning of uh, creation. Of course, he would want you healed. Well, you're still going to die. Lazarus still died. Everybody he raised from the dead, they still died. And what you know he's ultimately doing is he's trying to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, that he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete that work. And then maybe it's the cancer that's going to drive you to his throne, that's going to create in you the image of Christ, and it's going to bring more people to his son for your glory. What's he going to do? I don't know. I don't know what he'll do. But I do know that it's good. Can you trust that every answer that he gives is good? And he's ultimately doing it for your good, for his glory, because he is good and everything he does has to be good. So ask, keep asking, keep on asking, but don't just keep asking, keep seeking, it says, the next thing. And so what happens here is these images, they're all metaphors for prayer, and they all really mean the same thing, pray. But they increase in intensity, each one. Ask, then seek. What does seeking add to asking? Asking, you'd request something. But seeking, you take action. If you're looking for a job, you ask for a job, you wait for a response. If you're seeking a job, you go out and you start looking for the job. You actually go after it. And so you keep on present imperative. You're commanded to not just ask, but to also seek, to take action. So you're seeking God's will. You're seeking his leading. You're seeking his answer. So you go to the scriptures. 
What has he said already about this? You're going to other godly people. And you want to be in relationship with other godly people. They can speak in your life. They're going to carry those burdens with you. And you live in community. You're, doing, you're taking actions too. You're not just a hearer of the word. You're a doer. So you keep asking to him. You seek the answer. You're going after it. It's like uh, in our house a couple months ago. We went on a road trip together as a family, and my wife made this dessert as one of the snacks for us to eat while we were on this road trip. It was gooey butter cake. I don't know if you've ever had it. Um, I don't know what all gooey butter cake is like, but I love the gooey butter cake that my wife makes. It's sugar and sweetness with mushy and messy, and so it's like perfect. I love it. I think it's awesome. It's got like a cookie little bottom on it. It's amazing. And uh, I've got a very sharp mind when it comes to knowing how much food is around that I really like. And so we went on this road trip, and I knew there were two pieces of gooey butter cake left when we were all done. We get home. We're unloading the car. I'm unloading the car. It's my job. I don't know when that got written into my job description, but that is what I do when we go on road trips. And so I'm unloading all the stuff out of the car. I remember taking the gooey butter cake and setting it on the counter in our kitchen. It was wrapped in some tin foil. And to get the whole car unloaded, later that night, kids are in bed. They've been sleeping for a couple hours, and I get a craving. Guess what I want? Gooey butter cake. I go to the kitchen. It's not on the counter. So I look in the refrigerator. I don't see it in the refrigerator anywhere. I go to the pantry. Maybe someone put it away in the wrong spot. I start looking around the counter. I can't find it anywhere. I start to get slightly upset, but I go with a nice tone to my wife, thinking maybe she ate it. (laughs) Shanna, did you eat the gooey butter cake that was out in the kitchen? No, I didn't. But she said she saw it on the counter. So I go back out, and I start looking on the counter. we got papers everywhere. I start moving the papers around, and I'm looking for the stuff. I don't see any gooey butter cake, and so I go back through the refrigerator. It's not in there. I look in the pantry again. It's not there. I go back out to the car, even though I remember bringing it in from the car, and I start looking at that. I'm so desperate, I go to the car we weren't driving, and I look underneath the seats in that car. I don't know why. I come back in the house. I actually went up to the bedroom. I have to confess this. I went up to the bedroom of one of my kids who had been sleeping for two hours who has a propensity to eat sugar when she's not supposed to, and so I wake her up. Did you eat the gooey butter cake? Why are you? No. Are you lying? It was like a full-on interrogation. I was like, are you lying? Do not lie. You can't handle the truth. And we're going into the thing. She says, no. I come back downstairs. Somehow I went to sleep that night. I don't even know how it happened. Because I had this crave. I was like a bulldog after a bone. It wasn't like I could just eat some cereal. So I went to sleep. The next night at dinner table, it's almost 24 hours later, we're sitting at the dinner table, and I said, who ate the gooey butter cake that was out on the counter? The kids, no, I wasn't me. They start pointing at each other. It was, hey, you know, so-and-so did it. There's that one. No, no one takes any ownership of it. This Thursday, two months later, this Thursday, I'm in our refrigerator, and I'm looking for a snack. And so you see this tendency in my life, right? And so I'm in the snack. And they've got this drawer. I pull it out, and I'm digging way in the back because I'm not finding anything that I like. And I find a moldy carrot. And a piece of crust from a sandwich, I don't have any idea why it's in our refrigerator. I pull it out. And then some tin foil. And I pull the tin foil out and I open it up. And it's what was formerly known as gooey butter cake. It's now crusty butter cake. I walk in the bathroom. I said to my wife, look at this. It's that gooey butter cake. And her first statement to me immediately was, you're not going to eat that. (laughs) Of course I'm not going to eat that. Five minutes later, we're out in the um, kitchen. My daughter, who I interrogated about the gooey butter cake, I pull it out. I said, look, I found that gooey butter cake. She says, Dad, you're not going to eat that, are you? I have a reputation in our home for eating things that are left in the refrigerator. I was on a mission to find the gooey butter cake. I was seeking the gooey butter cake. What if I sought the Lord in his leading, like I saw just gooey butter cake. Jesus uses some more intense illustrations in scripture. In Luke chapter 15, he talks about losing money. Can you imagine if you lost money, a large sum of money, and you're somewhere in your house, what would you do? You'd tear your house apart to find it. He uses another illustration. He talks about lost sheep. Imagine if your pet were missing. See people put posters up around town when their pets go missing. 
and you'd go looking. You'd seek your pet. A more intense illustration is a child. Ever seen the specials on news, whether it's uh, America's Most Wanted? John Walsh has the story of going after his son and changed the mission of his life. See some of these parents, they lose their children. Years later, they're still looking, seeking. The most intense illustration is actually of Jesus, though, coming after you. That's why he came to earth. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He came on a mission to seek and save that which was lost. He was coming for you. He's coming so you could be reconciled to the Father so he could die on the cross. He knew that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for you, and that was the mission that he was on. And he's commanding us to have that intensity as we seek. Seek God's will, seek God's leading, seek God's answer. Keep seeking, keep asking. This is how persistent prayer happens. You ask, 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 and you seek, 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 and then you knock, knock, knock. And what does that third command mean? It's, a, it's the picture of persistence, that you keep on, you don't stop. That you knock, the door will be open. Keep knocking, the door's going to be open. Keep knocking. You're asking for good gifts, he'll give you the good gifts. You seek it, you keep coming after it. He's, what he's going to give you is going to be good. And you keep on knocking. One person I read this week said that um, the image is like a kid in his house. Who, if dad were just sitting next to him on the couch, he'd just ask dad. But he can't find him. And so he goes looking for dad throughout the house. And then he finds dad, but he realizes dad's on the other side of his office door, and so he starts knocking, and he knows dad's on the other side, but he just keeps knocking until dad answers the door. That's the image that we have here. So you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. And there's an illustration of knocking uh, in Revelation, in the red letters in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus shares. He's talking about knocking on the doors of our hearts because he wants relationship with us. That's what he's cultivating as he's calling us to this prayer that we'd relate with him more. He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. You, anyone, haven't opened the door? He says, I'll come in and I'll eat with him and he with me and we will have relationship, we will have fellowship. And so he's knocking at the door of your heart and he wants you to be, and he uses the tensions in life and the circumstances and the difficulties and the cancer and all the stuff that other people mean for harm and he uses it ultimately for good because he uses those as stepping stones right into our life. He uses those to drive us to him. He uses those as the things that will cause us because it's when it becomes personal that it becomes real that it causes us to then ask him and so then we keep asking because it's something we really want and he wants us to really want him. He wants us to really want the character of Christ in our lives. And he wants us to realize that we can't meet that need. We can't do that. We can't discipline ourselves enough. And he drives us to him. Can you imagine if we cried out for this city to be changed? Or we cried out for, we tell all the people in our church that are members that we want you to have at least one person who doesn't know Jesus that you're praying for. Can you imagine if we cried out with the intensity for their salvation that we would cry out for our kids if they were lost? Can you imagine if we cried out with the intensity that we cry out for healing, that God would make this place right, that things wouldn't be as they are, but they would be as they should be and they could be by his demonstration. If we wanted it, like, not just to argue with someone else about our agenda, but we cry out to him because he's the one who can actually do something about it. It's as ridiculous as it is to have cancer and not ask for healing from God is how ridiculous it is to cry out to a bunch of people who aren't going to do anything about it, about abortion, when you can cry out to God who can transform hearts of those who are doing these things. To be upset about ISIS... When God's the one who can change their hearts, like he did the Apostle Paul who was killing Christians and made him his greatest ambassador. We've got the one who has all the resources and he only gives what's good. And so we can cry out to him and we might be asking for stones and we don't realize. We might be asking for snakes. Luke uses scorpions and, give, and eggs. We're crying for a scorpion. He'll give us the eggs. He's going to give us the bread. He's going to give us what is good. Do we trust him with the answer? 
Can you imagine if we would cry out with that intensity? It would be like the early church. You know what happens in the early church? Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they're crying out for God to work, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Then Peter preaches a message, 3,000 people get saved. And then in chapter 4, there's persecution. Persecution happens, Peter gets thrown in jail. John gets thrown in jail. They're going to be beaten. They don't know if they're going to be killed. The church starts crying out, but they don't just cry out, release Peter. Do you know what they cry out for? Boldness. God, make us bold. You know what ends up happening? Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. That's real prayer. That's not platitudes. That's crying out, you really want something. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. How hypocritical would it be for me to preach a message to you on prayer and us not pray today? And how hypocritical would it be for them to us to just pray the rote prayers that we've memorized as kids? Thank you for this. Bless this food. Be with so-and-so. Heal this thing. Some of us, we need to cry out. You need to cry out to God for him to do a work. Do a work in the city. You need to cry out to God on behalf of our church. We've got situations right now with the, uh, in our land situation. We think that God's leading us to build on this property. We've got stuff that's way out of our control. Cry out to God to work that out. Cry out to God to save. This, of course it's his will that he would save lost people. He says it in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And you've got a one. And who are you? Are you crying out to God? But maybe he wants to do a work in you in that process. How does he want to change you? And do you trust that his answers are good? And so we're going to cry out to God today. What are the tensions in this world? What are things that are not as they should be? You cry out to God on behalf of the guy who shot those brothers and sisters in Christ, that he would come to Christ? Will you cry out for God's justice to be demonstrated to this world so his glory will be revealed? Simultaneously, he can do both. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. You pray. You pray as the Lord leads you. You pray whatever God burdens your heart. Some of you might need to pray to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Cry out to him. Acknowledge that you can't save yourself and you need a Savior. And Jesus came to seek and save you. You're lost. So let's pray. I'll begin us. If you want to pray out loud, you can pray out loud. You want to pray silently in your seat, you can pray silently. You want to stand up, you want to sit down, whatever you want to do. Um, Let's just cry out to God. Father God, we come before you. We need you. We need you to show up. We need you to change this place. We need you to change us. Change our minds, change our hearts, change our lives. God, focus us on the things that matter and quit letting us get distracted. We repent of our sin. We repent of our lust. We repent of our hatred. We repent of our pride. We repent of the things that are turning us away from you. And we turn to you and we want you to renew our minds. We want you to change our lives. God, will you change this city? Will you save people that we know that are on their way to hell? Will you make that real to us that it's not just theoretical and someday, but you make that real to us? God, we cry out to you. We cry out to you with children that are wayward. We cry out to you with uh, needs that we can't meet. We cry out to you for Jad's son and for healing for Jad's son. We cry out, cry out for Matt's son and Matt's healing and we cry out for the other people that need healing in our church. We cry out for Lisa Wald and her cancer. I pray that you heal their cancer. I cry out for the dryers and their cancer. I pray, God, for the people that are struggling with disease that you give victory. And if you decide to do it differently, we trust that's good too.